Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to JPC. If you would grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of these blue hardback Bibles. They are all throughout the room. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's word out in front of them. If you're just joining us, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians this year. Uh, we're just a few weeks into it, and we're going to be looking today at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It's page 1,131 in those blue hardback Bibles. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word out in front of them. Looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 25. Hopefully you brought your Bible, and if you didn't bring your Bible, hopefully you have your scripture journal, and you were taking notes in our 1 Corinthians scripture journals this year. Friend, hear the word of the Lord to us. This is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Christian, hear the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible and your heart open as we pray? Father, in your Holy Spirit, we ask through the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of the cross, Christ crucified for us. Uh, Lord, would you call all those out of darkness into new life today? Uh, Lord, would this be the day of salvation for someone here? And Father, for those of us who look to you and love your son, we pray that we would have a deeper love for the body of Christ and the unity of your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what unites all Christians? What unites all Christians? If you look down at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, really all of 1 Corinthians chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, that whole section of 1 Corinthians, it's all about the unity of the body of Christ, right? That what unites us is greater than what divides us. Uh, so if you've been here for the past few weeks, you may have heard me talk about the universal or lower C Catholic church. And we know what the universal church is. It's all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. The church is all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And to call upon Jesus simply means that we repent of our old dead works. We repent of our old lifestyles and we turn to Christ. We see that he was crucified for our sins and he was raised so that we could have the same Holy Spirit that he has and live in a new way of life. 
You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is part of what unites all Christians, right? That's what we do. We look to Jesus for our salvation. And if you look down at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul uh, last week talked about how what unites the church is also this apostolic message, the message of the apostles. So whether it's Peter or Paul or any of the New Testament writers, all of these guys are proclaiming the one Lord Jesus Christ. So what unites the church is belief in, Lord, in the Lord Jesus and the apostolic message, which is contained for you and I here in the New Testament. But what I also want you to kind of wrap your mind around is another thing that unites the church, all Christians together, is the sacraments. So it's not just the word of God, it's also that all those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what unites all Christians is that when you and I are baptized, we are baptized into Christ. There's not a, such a thing as a Presbyterian baptism and a Baptist baptism. Baptism is you, Christian, united to Jesus. And as Paul's going to go on later in 1 Corinthians, he's going to remind us that there's how many Lord's tables? How many Lord's tables are there? There's one Lord's table, and it's not ours, it's his. There's one bread and when we bless the cup, we are blessing and participating in the blood of Christ. And there's one bread which we feed on, which is the body of Christ, his flesh for us. So what unites Christians together is adherence to the word of God, which is the teaching of the apostles, and our common sharing in the sacraments. But Paul, as he's trying to remind this broken and divided church in Corinth that what unites them is greater than what divides them, he mentions right there in verse 17 that really it's the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for us that also unites the body of Christ. So today I'm going to talk about the power of the cross. So if you're writing anything down and you don't hear anything else that I'm saying today, write down the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. That is also what unites the church across all denominational lines. Look at verse 17. Paul reminds us that he did not come to baptize, right? Because it doesn't matter who baptizes you because really they're baptizing on behalf of Jesus. But what Paul has come to do as an apostle is to preach Christ. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, that is of Greek philosophical thinking, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So what Paul's saying is what unites the body of Christ is that we are all underneath the cross. We are all equal at the foot of the cross, and we are all in need of the power of the cross. And now what Paul's going to do is he's so excited, he's now going to start talking about the cross. He's saying what's uniting us, and then he's going to focus in on how you and I should understand how the cross uniquely unites all Christians. So if you can look behind my left shoulder here, all throughout this morning, I want you to be looking at the cross and remembering that it is the cross of Jesus that unites all Christians. He's going to keep coming back to the cross, to the cross. So how is it that the cross unites all Christians? Well, look down at our passage this morning. Look at verse 18. This message or word of the cross, that word, word right there is logos. It can mean speech or message or word. He's talking about the preaching of Christ crucified. That message, the word of the cross, 
this story of Jesus for us is folly to those who are perishing. That is, it sounds stupid. This sounds like foolishness. God dead on a cross? What are you talking about? You think I'm that bad that Jesus had to die for me? Stop judging me. That message of the cross sounds like foolishness to those who are dead in their sins. But Paul says, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation. And I love that Paul says we are being saved. Because if you were here a few weeks ago, remember, we don't just experience God's grace in our past. God's grace forgives our past sins. But there's also a sense, Christian, that God is giving us grace upon grace here and now. And so we have been saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be saved. There's God's grace to you, Christian, in the past and even now in the present. And you can look forward to forward future grace. Christian, our whole life, there is a banner over us of God's grace and forgiveness. For that we cry, holy, 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 praise God for his grace. Christian, you and I are being saved, and that is the power of God. But of course, this offensive message of God crucified for us, of course, Paul has to pick this up because that's offensive to just about everybody that Paul can think of. So of course, Paul, as a Jewish ethnic man, he's going to say that sounds silly and weak of God. Why would the Messiah, who's supposed to conquer the nations, why would he be crucified as a criminal? That's weakness. That doesn't sound like the victorious Messiah that we were told to look forward to in the Old Testament. So for Paul, he says that this message of Christ crucified is a stumbling block. Right there, he mentions that in verse 23. And stumbling block in the Greek is scandalon. It's where we get the word scandalized or a scandal. It causes somebody to stumble. So for people like Paul, before he met Jesus, the cross was a stumbling block for him. He didn't see it as God sending his son for his sin. He saw it as a stumbling block, as something to be removed. For Greeks, if you look down, uh, so Greeks, of course, are the people who primarily live in Corinth, but it's also synonymous with the word Gentile, which means everyone who's not ethnically Jewish, right? So there was like two groups of people in the Old Testament. There was like Jews and there's everybody else. And the category for everybody else, you could call them Greeks, or you might call them Gentiles, or you might call them the nations. And in the Old Testament, you might call them the peoples, which is not a grammatical error. (laughs) It means the people groups. So Paul can talk about Greek and Gentile all throughout this passage, but basically he just means people like me, people who are from America, who are not ethnically Jewish. But specifically in Paul's culture right here, and especially in Corinth, the Greeks specifically were known for being big philosophical thinkers. Uh, Do you remember guys like Aristotle or Plato or Plutarch or the Stoics? Those are all Greek philosophical schools, and they loved thinking and they loved having philosophies. And so this idea that God would love you is foolish to them. It's it's nonsense. How could a God love anything? They're the gods, for crying out loud. And you think he was crucified as a criminal on the wrong end of the empire? That's ridiculous. Of course, what Paul's going to go on and say, he's going to say, yeah, I know that the message of the cross, this really does sound like the foolishness of God, and it sounds like the weakness of God. 
That's what he says right there in verse 25. He's, he's picking up their response. He says, yeah, the, the foolishness of God that he would die for our sins. I know that sounds foolish, but actually it's wiser than anything you guys could think of. And yeah, I know Jesus hanging on a tree by nails sounds like weakness, but it's stronger than anything you could imagine. So this morning, what I, I thought I would do is uh, arrange the, the sermon, uh, hopefully in a way that you can follow along and it'll make this passage come to life. Uh, so what I want to do is I'm gonna, we're going to look at four things this morning, and it's hopefully going to unpack the message of the cross for you and really unpack what Paul's saying here. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the weakness of God, we're going to look at the foolishness of God, and then we're going to look at the wisdom of God and the power of God. What do I mean by the weakness of God? Or better off, what does Paul mean when he talks about the weakness of God? It's right there in verse 25. What is he saying? Well, he doesn't think that God's literally weak. What he's saying, though, is that to someone who is Jewish who did not look to Jesus the Messiah like Paul before he met Christ, the image of the Messiah crucified, nailed to a cross, does not look like strength at all. It kind of looks like the exact opposite of strength. It looks like the Messiah went out with a whimper, not in a victory march. And of course, what they seek is they want a miraculous sign. That's what Paul says. The Jews, they seek a sign. So how is it that the cross was seen as weakness? Well, if you look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, we start to sort of understand what Jesus means by the cross. In Matthew 12, 38 through 40, it says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. You know, if you're the Messiah, do something awesome, and then we'll believe, right? If you're so great, do something great. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, when Jesus was preaching this good news of the kingdom, people were saying, well, if you're so great, do a miracle for us, right? Dance, little monkey, do your thing. And what does Jesus respond with? I'm not going to give you a sign that you want. In fact, I will give you a sign, and the sign will be kind of like how Jonah was gone for three days in the belly of the fish and then miraculously came back to life. I'll give you a sign like that. The Son of Man will be buried and three days later he will rise again. And that'll be the only sign that you ever get. And if you can't make sense of that sign, none of the other things are going to make sense to you. Later on, Jewish, uh, Jesus is arguing with these Jewish scribes and Pharisees. And in John chapter 5, he says these words. He says, you search the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's looking at these Jewish scribes and the Pharisees, and he's saying, you're pouring over this entire Old Testament. You know it so well, and you've missed the forest for the trees. Don't you see all of these stories are pointing to me and that I am the Messiah? All of the Old Testament sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, they were all building up to the ultimate sacrifice for sins. The Messiah pierced for our transgressions. But for many people, they still couldn't make sense of this. 
That's why on the cross in Matthew, Matthew tells us this happened to Jesus while he was on the cross. Matthew 27 says these words, and those who passed by as Jesus was on the cross, they derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked Jesus saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For this man said, I am the son of God. You see, Paul was preaching Christ crucified. When you and I look to the cross, you know, we look at it 2,000 years after the fact. You know, we wear it on our necklaces, right? But the problem is, is that we miss how scandalizing, degrading, and humiliating being crucified was. Uh, N.T. Wright says, wearing a cross on her necklace would be like wearing the electric chair on a necklace or wearing a hangman's noose. It was not a sign that people were proud of. It was a sign that they were scandalized by. What do you mean, Christ crucified? If he's so powerful, if he really is gonna make a new world, how is it that three nails are holding him to this piece of wood? You see, this is the offense of the cross. That's how many people see it. It's all so weak, isn't it? Greeks, meanwhile, demand wisdom. Uh, for our second point, I want you to see the foolishness of God. Now that we've seen why Paul's talking about the weakness of God, now let's see what the Greeks mean by the foolishness of God. Well, as I mentioned before, right, Greeks are, you know, known for their famous philosophies, you know, those classes we all got seasoned in college if you took them, you know, trying to understand the Stoics and the Platonists and the Neoplatonists and all that. But what they're saying about this message of Jesus is that it's foolish. It's stupid. It's folly. It makes no sense. Don't you have better high culture? Didn't you understand our Greek philosophy? So how is the message then of Jesus stupid or foolish according to these people, right? So if some people, they see Jesus on the cross as weak, therefore not worthy of following, how in the sense is the message of Jesus crucified stupid and foolish? Well, if you can't sort of imagine, this is not gonna be how you imagine life, but see if you can kind of follow along. For people like the Stoics and a lot of Greek people who loved Greek philosophy, the greatest goal was to achieve a state called apatheia. And apathy kind of is the same word we get from apatheia, which means you're not controlled by any impulse, right? So if you could imagine like apatheia was the goal of your life in the sense that you didn't want to be controlled by um, marketing. You don't want to be controlled by your urges. That was base of you to be controlled by your urges. So you didn't want to have anything controlling you. You wanted to always at all times be in control. And that's what they called apatheia. But what that meant was that if God is real, God is the ultimate apathetic being. Meaning that God could never love anybody because when you love somebody, they have a measure of control over you. And so the Greek philosopher said, well, God can't love you because then you would be in control of God. God would have to bend to your will if he loved you. 
And we all know God can't be like that. So therefore, this idea that God loves me and died for me is stupid because we all know that God is not capable of love because that would be beneath God. One of the earliest depictions of the cross comes from possibly the first century, maybe as late as the third century. So think like, I don't know, 90 AD to maybe 200 AD, okay? So around that very, very early time in the Christian church, we have found in 1857, we discovered a, the earliest depiction of the cross of Christ and it's etched into the wall and it's graffiti and it's called the Alexaminos graffiti. Uh, if you look over here behind me on the left hand, that's an actual picture of what's being inscribed in the stone. This was found in Rome. Uh, it could be as early as the first century, uh, as late as 200 AD. This is the first depic physical depiction that we know of of the cross, which is fascinating because it's not depicted by a Christian. Underneath it, you can't really see because this guy had terrible handwriting. He did not pay attention at school. It writes, Alexamenos Sebeti Theon, which says, Alexander worships his God. So someone in Rome decided to make fun of Christians, of someone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus, who Christian is united to you in the Holy Spirit. And there we see a naked Jesus with a head of a donkey, ridiculed. And there's that foolish guy, Alexander, from down the street, worshiping his God, N.T. Wright, uh, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, tries to get us to see the foolishness of this message. He says it this way, this wasn't a smart new philosophy. You know, to the Greeks, the message of Jesus was madness. It wasn't an appeal to high culture. It was news of an executed criminal from a despised race. The Christian gospel is all about God dying on a rubbish heap at the wrong end of the empire. Christian, I hope you're seeing that the particulars continue to be the universals. The particular experience of Christians living in a culture where the message of Christ crucified is foolish, dumb, and weak. You know, what did Marx call religion? Anybody know? Anybody remember their manif communist manifesto? Religion is the opium of the masses. It's for the weak. The particulars continue to be the universals. Christians were mocked in the first century and we are mocked in the 21st century. You know, I talked to a lot of Christians. They think we're going off the cliff. Really what's happening before our eyes, Christians, is we're actually just re-entering the first century. <laughs> and the particular problems, the particular experiences of Christians in the first century are continuing to be the universal things that you and I are experiencing. You will be mocked for being a Christian. You will be seen as weak intellectually for being a Christian. But for those of us who are being saved, for those of us who are being saved by grace, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's look at the wisdom of God. How does the message of Jesus 
speak to these people like the Gentiles. Well, look down at verse 20 for just a second. Paul says, you know, Paul's like imagining he's going into like a, like a debate, right? He's like, where's the one who is wise? That is, where's the Greek wisdom person? And then he says, where's the scribe? He means there, where's the Jewish Old Testament scholar that, that thinks that Jesus is not the fulfillment of the Old Testament? And then he says, where's the debater of this age? Right? He's saying, come on, let's, let's have this out. I want to explain to you how the message of the cross really is a message of wisdom and power. It's not God's weakness and it is not God's foolishness. It's actually wisdom and power. So how is it the wisdom of God? Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, it may be on your same page. Notice that Paul says that the gospel is wisdom. Paul says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although the gospel is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Remember our series in Hebrews, there's this age, but there's an age to come. He's saying rejecting Christ is the wisdom of this age, but there is a wisdom to God. So what is this wisdom of God? Well, what I want to suggest to you and, and the reason the gospel is so profound and why Gentiles need it, why these Greek philosophers need it, is that their egos are simply too big to fit in the door to the kingdom of God. Their egos are too big. What they need is humility. What they need to see is that God is infinitely greater more powerful or more loving than they could possibly imagine, that their philosophies could contain. To enter into the kingdom of God, we do not rise up smarter. We do not achieve our greatness. We humble ourselves and we say, there's God and here I am, a poor sinner. You know, it's interesting that the Greeks had four great virtues. You know, if you read things like the book of virtues for kids and stuff, the Greeks, they had four key virtues. You know what they were? Justice, prudence, temperance, and one more that I can't remember. Wisdom. Wisdom, justice, prudence, temperance. Those are the four great things every person should have. What's missing in the list? What's missing? Humility. Humility was not a value. It was not a virtue. It was your weakness. You see, the problem that Gentiles or people like us have is that we yearn to have an identity that we achieve. But the gospel comes along and says, friend, <laughs> that's all a sandcastle. The waves are going to knock your identity right over. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, Christianity tells us that our identity is not achieved by our greatness. You and I have an identity that is received. Every other system in this world, every philosophy tells you and I that if we follow the rules, if we compete, if we achieve, if we strive hard enough, then we will be accepted. But Christianity says, no, friend, we are accepted because of Christ and in Christ. And so therefore I perform. I perform because I'm already accepted. Every other system says, if you follow the rules, whether you have created the rules yourself or whether they are the rules of your family or the rules of some religion, as long as you follow the rules, you can have a stable sense of self. 
But for Christians, we have a stable sense of self and follow the rules because we know who we are in Christ. Friend, the mark of a Christian is that you recognize at a fundamental level that your identity, what gives you value, is something that you receive. It is something given to you and spoken over you in Christ rather than the collection of all your greatest achievements or failures. Recently, one of our dear friends, beloved friends, uh, did a DNA test to find her birth parents. Although she was adopted as an infant, uh, she courageously decided to find her birth parents. One wanted to meet with her, one didn't. And it's been interesting walking with somebody who's adopted through life, right? Because they have big questions that they wrestle with all throughout life. Why was I given up? Who loves me? And as much as we might want to love our friend and be there for our friend, as much as we might want to help them, uh, there's, there's one thing I can never call her. What's the one thing I can never call my friend? I will never be able to say, daughter. And that's probably the most important thing she needs to hear one day. You see, friend, love is something that you receive from God. No matter how great your friends are, no matter how great your achievements are, fundamentally what you and I need is God the Father to speak over you and I, son, daughter, mine. And that received identity is not something you can achieve. You cannot name yourself daughter or son. You need the Father to speak it over you. Friends, the seeming foolishness of God is actually his love for sinners. His love that drove him to the cross so that he could offer you a spot in his family. What is the power of the cross then? If the foolishness of God is actually his love giving you a place at his table, what is the power of God? Well, we see it in the cross, right? They understood that God was going to do a sign, that God was going to do something that was like, "Eh, eh, 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 this is a sign. It has symbolic value. It should mean something to you. But they misread the sign. The sign was Christ crucified. And what does that sign mean? Well, Paul says of the gospel in Galatians that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, it is true that God's word says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. But if you see the weakness of Christ in him being hung by the tree, you're missing the point. Jesus was cursed for us. Our sin deserved punishment. And instead of punishing you and I, God said, punish me. I will take the blow. I will be cursed so they never have to. So all of the Old Testament laws are fulfilled in Christ. But you and I are not made right by works of the law. You and I are made right because Christ was cursed for us. You know, thinking about this power of the cross, I came across uh, John Chrysostom's sermon this past week on this passage. John Chrysostom was a pastor in the 300s. He was martyred uh, for his faith. Uh, Great guy. 
great bishop and uh, pastor, preacher of the gospel. And he's reflecting on the power of the cross. And he says these words, unspeakable is the power of the cross. He descended not from the cross, not because he could not, but because he would not. It was not weakness that nailed Christ to the cross. He could have come down from the cross at any moment. He says he could have called down legions of angels and smoked all of those guys. What held Christ to the cross was not the nails, nor was it his weakness. It was a full demonstration of the strength of his love for the Father and for you. For him whom the tyranny of death restrained not. If death could not hold Jesus back, how could the nails of the cross restrain him? What he means is death could not stop Jesus and the nails couldn't stop him either. So what kept him there on the cross? For in the apostolic message, what kept Christ on the cross was the salvation of those who had looked to him for faith. It's so Christ could look at you and say, forgiven, mine for eternity. That will humble you in ways for the rest of your life that you never knew you needed to be humbled. More and more, instead of inflating our hearts and our minds, it'll be a deflating of our egos. We must decrease, but he will increase. So let me just finish our time together with this. Look down at verse 18. For the word of the cross, remember, look over my left shoulder. For this message is foolish to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So which are you? Which are you? Friends, I want to suggest to you that what unites Christians is the cross of Christ, the wisdom of God, and the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you for the cross. Father, it moves our hearts and our minds. It gives us a new identity. Father, help us to leave this world that is perishing, the values of this world, the emptiness of this world. Lord, that we may take hold of that which is truly life, life filled with your graces, in step with your Holy Spirit, knowing that the all-sufficient merit of Christ really does make us new and give us an identity that we have not achieved, but Lord, that we have received the identity of beloved sons and daughters, equal at the foot of the cross. Lord, what glory and grace. And Father, our hearts are so hard. So Father, replace them with hearts of flesh that we might see the glory of the cross of Christ and experience its power. Father, this morning we pray for those who are going through difficulties and Lord, we pray that they would live in light of your cross. Lord, we pray for Clyde Hoffman, Ella Klimko, Jim Saltz, 
Mary McClure, Paul Deller, and Sean McCoy. Father, give them strength today by your grace. And Lord, this week we pray for Rogue Valley Fellowship Church. Lord, we lift to you, Pastor Kenner, and Lord, we pray that you would be moving and active in that church. Lord, that your graces would be seen, uh, demonstrated through their people in power, and Lord, that there would be a renewal of the gospel of grace in their hearts and minds. And lastly, Lord, we pray for our mission of the month. Lord, we pray for our Youth Mexico mission trip. And Lord, especially we lift to you those families that will be receiving new homes. Lord, would you dwell there among them in their homes and in your grace. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us and the power of the cross. Amen.